This is an Ion Annapolis bonus podcast. Hey, you know, I just realized that, I say I don't realize, I just discovered that November is National Hospice and Palliative Care Month, and I thought it would be a good time to dig a little bit deeper into the wonderful organization we have right here in the area, the Hospice of the Chesapeake. And on the phone with me today is Mike Brady, who is the acting CEO of the Hospice of the Chesapeake. And prior to that, he was a CFO of a company in Rockville called the National Lutheran Communities and Services. How are you today, Mike? I'm good, John. How are you today? You are the acting CEO of the Hospice of the Chesapeake. I know that the former CEO, Ben, had taken a job with the National Palliative uh, Organization, which was a, you know, probably a, a great move for him. And you, mm-hmm. you are aptly leading the organization as you have been their chief financial officer since 2017, right? Yeah, that is correct. That is correct. So Ben, I mean, Ben left uh, just about a month ago now. And as you know, it was as surprising and as sad as it was to to see him leave. It was a great opportunity for him. So, you know, you feel a little bit bittersweet, you know, saying goodbye. But when you look at the opportunity that he can serve on a national scale, um, it's really an opportunity that 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 he couldn't he couldn't pass up. So, uh, so again, it, it was sad for us, uh, but we're very happy for Ben. And uh, you know, I continue to have a great relationship with Ben. We had a brief conversation, a brief podcast with Ben. Uh, gosh, it was prior to COVID, I know, and um, and it was just great to get a little bit of insight to the Hospice of the Chesapeake and the hospice program in, in general. And I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into it, and I didn't realize that it was uh, National Hospice and Palliative Care Month. Good and timely. Mm-hmm. Yep. I will say my, both of my parents have passed on, and, and they both went through hospice. And prior to my mother going through it, I, you know, I had no idea. I just thought it was a typo, and they meant to spell hospital. Um, I, I, I sort of joke there, but I mean, I really didn't know what hospice was. And right. as both of my parents have passed, I can vouch that it is the utmost incredible organization um, for somebody that is at their, you know, toward the end of their life uh, to, to let them go out in comfort. And um, it's a very comforting thing to the patients as well as to the families and the people that are, that they're leaving behind. Um, But there's a lot of uh, misconceptions I know that I had, and I probably still do. And hopefully maybe with your years of experience, uh, Mm -hmm. you might be able to dispel some of them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think, first of all, um, everybody hears the word hospice and gets very scared um, because, you know, you're starting to talk about the end of life. And it is. I mean, it's, it is a six month benefit. um, But one of the things I I think families don't realize, and I, I personally went through this also with, with my mom, you don't realize the team of people that is really going to come in and, and help, you know, your loved one, you know, the patient. But then in turn, also help the family who is grieving, because what what I've seen hospice do is when you have a dedicated nurse, a dedicated CNA, um, religious support, social workers, a bereavement group who can come in and support, that takes an incredible amount of stress off the family. I know for my, my personal experience, you know, my family did not want to talk about hospice care. And didn't really enter it until very late, which is which is unfortunate because I think the benefit, for example, my mom could have received or other families can receive 
could be so much greater if if we can reach people sooner. Um, but it's it is a very hard conversation to get kicked off, you know, six months out with a patient or a family because you don't know where they are as a level of acceptance. You know, I will say that a lot of conversations in life should be had a lot earlier. And I mean, it can go from I'm not happy in my marriage, so I want a divorce. I mean, you hear people that have been stuck in unhappy marriages for decades talk about a let's talk about a will for when I'm mm-hmm. dying in the right. future. That always tends to, right. you know, I mean, it was very taboo in my family. It was like, don't ever ask dad how much he makes because he'll go off the deep end and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fi- you know, figure that out because I mean, you look at a different generation, and that was just that was that was none of your business. And right, and, it, was, it was much more privacy. And so. then I think that we look at the end of life, and it is it is a transition uh, in any number of different ways, but it is something that needs to be somewhat planned out. And I just can't imagine. I mean, both of my parents, uh, I'll say, fortunately or unfortunately, I mean, we realized when it was coming; they were very old. I, I just can't imagine being thrown into a situation. I mean, okay, you've got an aging parent and you realize that the time is coming somewhat soon, whether that's eight years, 10 years, or two months. But I, if you had a, a vibrant parent that all of a sudden or a child that was in a car wreck, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, your entire, right. you know, there's, it's a shock of dealing with the end and then having to deal with it is, yeah. you know, I, I, this is just such a, that's why I think this is such a great opportunity for people to mm-hmm. to have the conversation and to get involved with that. But I think, John, I think there's really two levels. I mean, number one is if you're able to have the conversation, and I know many people have been through this, you know what you, your mom, your dad, your spouse, you know what they want. You know, you know what kind of funeral they want. You know what they don't want, um, et cetera. So that's so you are you are trying to do good by what your mom, dad, spouse, you know, believes that they think they want as they're passing. That's number one. The second piece, that grief piece, that's that's that support piece for the family. I mean, that's where, you know, really a hospice like a bereavement coordinator can kind of coach the family. And, it, and that's not a short term um, that's not a, a short term where we're here while the while the patient is alive or a week after they have passed. That's something that goes on for 13 months after a patient has passed away. And that's something I know um, that families really appreciate because everybody processes grief a bit different. You know, some people can get through it very quickly. Other families, it takes much longer. I mean, that grief walk is just so much longer. Sure. Um, sure. But, yeah, to have that conversation earlier just so everybody's really on the same page, what what I would hate to see and what I think a lot of families would hate to see is there are arguments after after a patient passes away because they think mom or dad wanted X and actually, no, they told me they wanted this. Um, you want as much of that cleared up really on the front end. But having, I agree with you, having that conversation early, it, it just it alleviates a lot of other questions later. It it really does. I've I've had a friend that was actually in hospice for a while, and then he went home and whatnot. So it is not necessarily just for terminal patients, is it? I mean, well, hospice is a six month benefit. So if you you need you need a doctor who's who's going to deem that yes, hospice services are appropriate, but it is a 
it's, it's saying you have a terminal illness and you probably have less six months or less to live. And that benefit is, I mean, it's paid predominantly by Medicare in, in most cases. But prior to that, so somebody who has maybe a chronic illness or, or multiple com- comorbidities, but is not six months or less, can receive something called palliative care or supportive care. So that is something you can be on for years prior to hospice care. So, you know, there is there is a little bit of a distinction. I'd almost refer to it as like a pre-hospice. Okay, okay. I, my, my mother-in-law was suffering from cancer for a while, and I know that she had somebody from the hospice up in Pennsylvania come in, and it was taking care of the meds and the pain and whatnot, but there wasn't a right. a real definitive, okay, I think this is the end type thing. So then that switches over into the hospice mode once you out of the palliative care? Yeah. So, so if a disease progresses to a certain point, then yes, you will get into, you will get into hospice care then. But, but that palliative, again, it doesn't bring in as much of that team that I was referring to earlier, you know, the RN, CNA, spiritual, social work. Right. But there are people who can coordinate your care and, and help you kind of navigate the system or, you know, so you have a point of contact almost like a quarterback who can kind of navigate the system and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Here's your med management. Here's your plans of care. And to really go back to the conversation that we were just talking about can start to have that end of life conversation. If it's never happened, Um, some families are ready for it. Some people are ready for it. Others are not. Um, Some some families just don't want to have it. Unfortunately. No, I mean, I I was probably part, part in that, group as well. And I know that uh, when we went mm-hmm. to have it, I mean, we even got to the point where we were having it and it was like, okay, yeah, I'm not sure I want to have this. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, no, I, I, I agree a hundred percent because, but I can look back. I mean, again, for me personally, when I had that conversation with my mom, it was very, it was very emotional. And, and, but I knew she, but my mom was not emotional. This was very, it was very much, you know, she was, she was very much at peace having the conversation. <laughs> it was like, yeah. and I, and, and you just, you're there and you know, you have to have it. It's like, she, I, 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 I don't want to, but I know I have to. She's mom. So. She's in charge. She always has been. Yep. And, and it's not going to be any different now that we're, and I'm, I'm going to be the last person to tell her no right now. So. You know, it, and, and it's so funny. You talk about the way different people grieve and deal with different things. I know that uh, my father was in, you know, his last days and I was down with him in Florida and he had said, okay, well here, I want you to have this. And there were some of his war medals from World War II and whatnot. And uh, here, take this picture with you when you fly back up. And, you know, we, we knew it was probably a month or so. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was just like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I, I said, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, this is yours. And my, my mind was mm-hmm. like, it belongs to you until you're no longer here and then I can take it. But I, I mean, right. I, I, that was just my own way of dealing with it. You, you had mentioned that a doctor needs to sort of prescribe for lack of a word, better word, hospice care mm-hmm. or to enter it into that. Now, is that a, something that the family doctor that would prescribe, would he continue care at that point or does that pass over to the hospice? No, the family doctor would still be involved. Um, you know, the, the, the the doctor, I mean, your doctor remains involved with the hospice process, but again, you're going to get that added layer of the 
you know, the experts or dedicated experts, whether it's, again, the nurse, social worker, et cetera, um, to, again, help you navigate the system. But your doctor is would still be involved. There is there can be a transfer from one doc to the next. Uh, but your your primary care can remain involved, you know, because they're going to be the ones who have to say, yes, you know, I think this is a path we should go down. Well, I also think that the family doctor is probably not as deeply familiar with the very end of life as the hospice would. To Correct. Be, to be to be Correct. able to see the the signs and the uh, the behaviors and whatnot that come there, as opposed to he's been treating the disease as it comes up to it, whether it be cancer, right. or whether it's just uh, you know old age or emphysema or whatever it may be. Um, so yeah. I, that makes that and, makes sense to me. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a big reason, maybe why you know, like we serve hospice patients, and, and for us personally at Hospice of the Chesapeake. You know, our average length of stay for a hospice care patient is about two months. And I think that ties into, you know, doctors, many doctors are into the, um, they're into the mode of care. You know, they, they want to find what, what can I cure? What can I do? As opposed to looking at and saying, oh, we, we may be at the end of the road here and have less than six months to go. So it becomes, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's hard on both sides. So I, I can see kind of why this happens even from a doc side. Yeah, no, I, I can, I can see that they've taken an oath to, to save people. And this is, mm-hmm. uh, whether you, know, you look at it, it's a failure or it's just something that's out of their control. I get that. Well, that makes sense. Is there any other big right. myth about hospice that, that you know of that people should know about? Well, I mean, I, I think the the big myth, I would think that when people hear the word that somebody is on hospice, that it's they've either thrown in the towel or given up. And that is not that that's not the case. I mean, hospice is an additional level of care or treatment. Again, it's for the patient, but it's also for the family. It's not the end of care. It's really a shift in care, something that's more, let's say, comfort oriented, um, that centers on the, on the patient and how they're going to live, you know, their last days the best and how to alleviate again, some of the stress off of families to be able to enjoy that without having to worry about again, med management. Do we need to get a new bed, you know, any kind of medical equipment, where we have medical supplies, all that's really taken off the plate for the family. So I think that's the biggest myth that it's, that you're giving up. It's not giving up. It's really just, it's a shift in focus and actually looking at where you are and saying, this is reality. And I want to do the best I can for as long as I'm here. And and the general goal in the most simple terms for a hospice organization is comfort of the patient, correct? Correct. Correct. That's, it's, it's actually two prong. I mean, that's the first goal is the comfort of the patient. The second one, and it kind of, again, comes on the backside, it's really the care for the family. You know, whether it's a spouse, the kids, brother, sister, et cetera, um, that's what kind of kicks in second. And I, I don't think a lot of people realize that piece to it because that support, whether it's bereavement services, et cetera, that we can provide on the back end that really helps those families after the patient's passed. Well, I do know that Hospice of the Chesapeake has – Many different programs, and they're con- they're consistently running them. Is that something that's 
unique to the hospice of the Chesapeake or is that unique or is that part of the hospice concept in general to have the you know the post passing care of mm-hmm. the family and the survivors well that that's a part of the hospice benefit but i will tell you john the it's the level that organizations will go to as far as you know bere- is bereavement services me mailing you a monthly letter saying you know here are some good tips as far as bereavement um we have some generous donors who help fund some of our Chesapeake Life Center programs that can help run like a kid's camp. Um, Not every hospice organization will do that. We have um, counselors that are here that you can come in and meet with monthly, uh, you know, or or more frequently if needed. So all of those, it, it really becomes every organization needs to offer certain benefits but it's the level in which we go to. And, and I'm, I'm very proud of the way we do it. It's, it's actually, it's very impressive when you see it in action to know that no matter what, this bereavement team, this support team is going to be here again for spouses, for, for kids, um, you know, whoever, whoever's going to need that care, uh, that supportive care after somebody passes. Does hospice work with children as, as, yes. as far as patients? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times, and, and I'll tell you, John, that, that's, that's like the worst one I see on census is when you see your pediatric census. Um, but a lot of times that becomes, I'll say a less expensive alternative than to a child going into the hospital. Um, what's different. We're talking about a six month benefit with pediatrics that works different. They can go on to hospice care, receive those benefits, but is not limited to six months. Okay. Okay, because I know I know you hear these, you know, horribly tragic stories um, mm-hmm. about children, you know, passing away so young, whether they have cancer or something like that, and and they've you know beat the odds. The doctor has said, okay, you've got six months, you've got three months, and you know, like three years later, they're they're still hanging in there, and right. um, you know, so that that makes sense there. Well, I'll tell you, let's talk a little bit about Hospice of the Chesapeake and slide out of there because you guys are, do things a little bit differently. Uh, your main campus, I guess it is, is based up in in the Dina, up on Ritchie Highway in Pasadena. Yep, and, and that's correct. I I am familiar with the office part of that campus, and actually, there's a little building there. I think I was at a uh, fundraiser one time, and I had went there to pick up a pick up my winnings at a uh, okay. at a at a fundraiser there. But what hap- What happens up there? Obviously, your administration is up there, but what happens on that campus in Pasadena? So we have this is your correct, John. This is our main administrative building. Um, but also on this campus, we have we have a center inpatient care center called the Rebecca Fortney inpatient care center. And that's a 14 bed uh, inpatient care center where if if a patient needs to come in and these are for acute bouts of pain. So, you know, it's really for med management so we can get really dedicated you know, doctor or nurse time with the patient to kind of regulate medications before sending somebody back home. I mean, most most patients, I think all patients, really want to want to pass away where they live. You know, at home. This is when when the when the medication gets out of whack or it's not working for a patient, and they just need somebody to to kind of monitor that for a while to adjust it so that they can come home. So, we have the Rebecca Fortney Inpatient Care Center here. Uh, patients will usually come in, let's say, for about three to five days. 
before they return home. Okay. Uh, but that's that's not our only inpatient care center because we actually have another one down in Harwood, Maryland, called the Mandarin House, which is an eight-bed facility. And it's the same exact same concept. So although most of the operations is here, we do have the two inpatient care centers. And we've actually just added a third one because we just had the acquisition or merger with Hospice of Charles County that occurred about three weeks ago. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. So they have an inpatient care center there too. So we'll be, we're actually doing a walkthrough and, and need to do a little bit of a refresh, but uh, that'll be able to serve the patients of Charles County. So. Well, it's, it's funny when you said the Mandarin house, I was like, I, I have in my notes here. I said, yes, in on route two in Edgewater-ish. So I guess Har- Harwood is more appropriate yeah. now that I think about it yeah. as, as you go down there. But also up yep. in Pasadena, it's the Chesapeake Life Center. What what Correct. specifically is that? So Chesapeake Life Center, it, that's the bereavement piece to, to the organization that we were talking about. So they'll provide all the counseling, um, whether in person, you know, obviously these these days it's through Zoom. Um, Everything is you know, through that, Zoom. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But, yeah, they'll, they'll provide a lot of the counseling. Uh, that's exactly what the Life Center does. You know, we do have an education team that's up here also. So we have an education center. But 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 the Chesapeake Life Center is that bereavement arm that we were talking about earlier of the organization. And these have this is the the organization or the the part of your organization that would offer the I know they've got camps for children that have suffered yep. a loss. Uh, they've yep. got just I guess it sounds like it's a an AA type of a meeting where you would bring people in and, and let's just talk about our grief. Here's what I'm, you know, little group sessions. And correct. this is all included when you've got a patient that's, you know, that, that's passed away. And it's, correct. it's a great resource for anybody in my, I would say now you mm-hmm. cover Prince George's, Anne Arundel, and now Charles, right? Correct. Correct. And, and it really, I mean, what we've, we've offered and we do try to, to be in touch with the, with each County is um, if you have something tragic, let's say happen at a school. So let, let's unfortunately say there was, you know, you have a, a teenager who may, who's maybe passed away in a car accident or something like that. Our Chesapeake life center, although maybe, maybe these are not, they're not obviously clients of ours, but we'll reach out for grief support. So when you hear about counselors going into a school, it very well could be one of our counselors going in to try to just to try to help to give back to the community because that's that's I mean that's part of our mission. Yeah, well that makes sense, and then you guys would be the the experts on you know pretty much on dealing with the types of grief that are there because it do, it doesn't matter. I mean, if somebody has a diagnosis of six months or three months, even though you can sort of mentally prepare for it, when the time happens, it's you know it is a shock. It's okay. Hey, mom is not here anymore. That's right. That's a, that's a very sobering thought on that first day, you know, after somebody passes. Yeah, cor- correct. Okay. Correct. So they, they do, they'll step in and, and even with, you know, another example is like with the op- opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they, they try to, you know, they'll reach out to people too. If, you know, if there's some way that they can help and then, you know, unfortunately, I mean, it, it's a big job with a lot of hours. Um, they, they, you know, find themselves very busy um, trying to help not just our patients, but the wider community. Well, hopefully we could figure a way to make them unemployed when it comes to that part of it, because uh, <laughs> it's, you know, you know I, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I look at, at life in general and how this opioid epidemic has taken off 
in yeah. the last you know five or ten years. And I I think back to when I was a kid, and you talk about somebody that was on heroin, and it was relegated to you know oh it's just you know in big big cities, and it's the right. the, the really bad people. And now I can't. I, I've got so many friends that have been affected by it, whether they've right. lo- lost a child, whether they've lost a relative, whether they're personally addicted or, or fighting addiction. And it's just – it's crazy that it has come to this and it's, it really is an epidemic that we need to get our hands on. Right. Once, no, we, once we get I rid agree. of COVID, I guess. But No, and it's just – it doesn't look at race, creed, color, income level. It doesn't matter. It, it just – it's it's just it's a sad sad thing in our country. It's kind of scary, personally. I mean, I have two kids who are now twenty one, and I think, gosh, I hope there's nothing like that. You know, it's, so, uh, it's funny. I talked to um, Wes Adams, who used to be the state's attorney in Anne Arundel County, and he said that when he went in the hospital for a back surgery, uh, they gave him the whole ton of opioids to go home. And they said the only warning they gave him was that hey, it might make you constipated. And I remember when I came home from some knee surgery one time, they gave me again the, the whole bunch of different opioids and they said, here, get on this. And they gave me uh, you know, morphine pills, I think, and Percocets and, and whatnot. And they said, get ahead of the pain, get ahead of the pain. And I, I don't trust myself well enough to know that I couldn't become addicted. So I took, yeah. I, took, I, yeah. took, I took a couple of the morphine little tablets and it gave me a weird feeling in my chest. I just said, you know, I'm going to see how bad the pain is. And mm-hmm. and, it, and as it turns out, it wasn't that bad or I have a high tolerance for pain, but I just didn't trust myself to turn around and take, you know, a, a Percocet or, you know, some of the other drugs that they had prescribed by myself saying, well, man, you know, that kind of felt good. I, yeah. I'm going to get a burrito. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's I think I mean, I agree with you 100 percent because I think society wise, you're kind of scared now. It's like I don't want to go near this stuff. I mean, I luckily I've not had any surgeries. But it's like I really don't want to mess with any of this because I don't know the I, I don't know if I'm going to like it or not. So I just want to stay away from it. So on the hospice of the Chesapeake, you guys, you said you that Medicare pays for a good portion of this, and you've got some yeah. very generous donors that have helped really expand your Chesapeake Life Center with the programming and and whatnot. There, um, where do you where do you guys get your money? I mean, is it shaking people down for money every year. I know you do have the gala every year, except for last year. So, so, I mean, as far as like for hospice care, there's really little or no out-of-pocket costs uh, for families. I mean, it's usually covered by either Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance. So families aren't paying anything. So that part of it is covered. The piece that we do on the fundraising side that you're referring to, our, our philanthropy team, I mean, they have we have an annual gala that does very well. We have a, a golf tournament that does excellent. We have a runway show called Fashion for a Cause that does really well. And and those are the funds that we look at to use for I call them the what's next dollars. You know, what do we want to do next? So if we're looking at making an investment in the Chesapeake Life Center, you know, to to expand programming there, to add in another kids camp. Whatever those things are, that's what that's going to support. Much the same way, like like I look at Charles County, you know, there are startup costs that we need in order to get that program really up and running the way we're, we're running up here in Anne Arundel County and in Prince George's County. So 
that's what those fundraising dollars um, help us to help us to support as we grow and we look towards the future. Um, but most of, I mean, hospice care itself, again, usually there's no cost to the family. I mean, it's Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance is going to cover it. Right. Well, people that want to donate certainly can go to hospicechesapeake.org, which is your the mothership of your websites. Correct. And, um, you know, to do to do that, and, and this is exciting about Charles County. I mean, that's a how many how many employees does Hospice of the Chesapeake now? Hospice Chesapeake has about two hundred fifty, two hundred sixty employees. Oh wow! So Charles County has you know has about forty uh, to start. So it's going to be a little bit of a shift. I mean, obviously, we're trying to centralize some of the programming, you know, in the back of the house, um, but changing the way we kind of operate down there. And uh, and really trying to serve more patients and families. You know, currently they're serving, I believe it's about 45 patients and families down in Charles County. Um, and, and we just want to expand that coverage. Um, you know, work that work closer with the CCRCs that are in the community. Work closer with Charles Regional Medical Center, um, and just develop those really robust partnerships that are going to help to get the services out there. Well, that's what I was, I was going to suggest, that, or not suggest, but that's what I was going to ask you about is the different partnerships and the outreaches that you have. You mentioned, you know, you might go into the schools for counseling or something like that, but certainly I've got to think there's got to be a need for uh, coordination, I'll say, between hospice and, you know, we'll say like the wellness house here in Annapolis or through the, the, the hospital hospitals and doctors and, you know, oncologists and whatnot that, you know, to make sure that, Hey, this is this is here and this is great. Correct, correct. And we try to. I mean, we're out trying to meet with all these people regularly. I mean, I like to meet with with um, you know again Charles Regional. I was actually just down there this morning talking with them, but talking to Wellness House, talking to uh, Annapolis Oncology, you know, trying to understand what are their needs and what can we do to work together. I mean, I'm a true believer in partnership. How do we work together for the best of the community and the best of the patients that we're both serving? Because that's a win-win. You know, it's not just, you know, we went, you know, it's not just benefiting us. We have to be serving the hospitals, um, physician offices, et cetera, in order for there to be true collaboration together. Volunteers, do you need them? Do you use them? Oh, yes. Yeah, we have, we have a, a, a a wide variety of volunteers. Um, we do have a requirement. Uh, we're volunteer uh, volunteer hours, and uh, that we meet every year. So yes, we have a we have a number of volunteers, and have helped with a with a number of different things, especially during COVID. So when you think of things like us needing masks, we we had people donating masks, we had people donating time, we had people looking for you know uh, protective equipment, the PPE you heard about all over the news. We had people coming in to just you know, make phone calls, reaching out to patients and families that we couldn't visit just to be able to say, hey, we're here, we're thinking about you. Is there anything you need that we can support on the back end? So, so yeah, we have a very large volunteer network that has just, you know, been invaluable to us. Great. And are you actively, always actively looking for volunteers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're always willing to accept, accept new volunteers, looking for new volunteers. You know, anybody who wants to sign up obviously can go through our website uh, to to join hospice. Uh, there is a little bit of a screening process up front. But That's a good thing. Volunteers. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. But once we have volunteers in, um, you know, we will utilize them. You know, again, it's it's for the good of the community. You know, how can we again, it's outreach. Well, this is one of the greatest assets of the community. And, you know, there are how many hospices are there in the country? Do you have any idea? Wow. Uh, in the country, I don't know. It's it's really each state works very different. Uh, Maryland is what they refer to as a certificate of need state. So what you really need is a license within the county. So, for example, that's why I say we're in three counties. That's where we have licenses to to operate um, in other counties or other states, say like, say like California. California is not a certificate of need state. So you and I could go there and start a hospice in San Diego. That's just, it's just, a, it's a different model. It's, okay. it's open, it's more open competition. Um, so again, Maryland is, is just a different state in how that certificate of need works. But we are fortunate. I mean, this is, hospice services is not available everywhere. Is that true? Well, it, or? it, it is, a, it's available everywhere. It does become more limited in your rural areas. Well, well, let's take Charles County, for example. Hospice of Charles County is the only hospice in Charles County. So it's a one-stop shop. I mean, that's the only provider down there. Anne Arundel, Prince George. Anne Arundel has, you know, we have a license here. I think Seasons is another one has a license. But there are multiple hospice organizations here to choose from. Prince George's County is the same way. So you do have some limitations, specifically in more rural areas, as far as how many hospice choices you may have. But hospice is available everywhere. It just, I mean, because of distance, it obviously becomes a little more challenging uh, when you're further away from, from your highly populated areas. Right. Yeah. I would imagine programming in Montana is quite different than programming in Glen Burnie. Correct. Correct. Um, are, are, do you live locally? Actually, I live up in Carroll County. So okay. I live in, uh, in, in Sykesville, Maryland. Um, been there a couple of years and, uh, you know, have a have a nice place. I like like where I live, but it is a little bit of a hike down here every day. So. I, I was going to say, and, and, you, and you acquired one in Charles County. What were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, I know, go, go I know. Especially when I when I'm driving when I'm driving down there this morning. That's what I thought of. I'm like, wow, this is a long trip. So I, I know, but it's all good. I mean, that part of it, I I can you know when I step away from the me piece, I can step away from it and say, you know what. We're doing some good work here, and that's really what it's about. That's at the core for me. It, it really is, and what hospice does for this community is immeasurable. Uh, I didn't realize many of the things that we discussed there. Folks, if you have a senior in your life that is nearing their end of the life, it's not too early to start to look into it and to start to have that conversation, as Mike had mentioned. Uh, HospiceChesapeake.org is the website. Check out some of the programs that they have. I know that on Ion Annapolis, we feature a lot of the uh, bereavement camps and the, the seminars and everything now that's switched over to Zoom during COVID and everything else. But we all go through life with loss. We, we experience loss and it could be the loss of a pet or it could be the loss of a, of a child, a friend, a relative, a parent. And uh, this is a great resource everybody here in Anne Arundel County, Prince George's County, and now Charles County, I guess. That's correct. And once again, hospicechesapeake.org is where you want to go check it out. 
Mike Brady, who is the acting CEO for Hospice of the Chesapeake, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Good luck in your acquisition of Charles County and bringing them on board. And keep doing the great work that you're doing for residents of Anne Arundel, Prince George, and now Charles County. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate the time today. This has been a bonus podcast from Ion Annapolis. Please visit us at ionanapolis.net. Follow us on Facebook at All Annapolis and on Twitter at Ion Annapolis. And if you haven't subscribed to the Daily News Brief podcast, go for it. And all of your local news will be delivered to your phone, tablet, or smart device by 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday.